welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating the variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is Polly Birkbeck. After a memorable time at Food Records in the early 90s, Polly moved into music PR. She has worked at independent PR companies, specifically the legendary Savage and Best in those heady Britpop days, and record labels including Head Press at V2. Polly now works freelance with her complete control PR company and is responsible for a wide variety of back catalogue, compilations, reissues and books. Currently, Polly works with a wonderful varied roster including Paul Weller, Joan Jett, Sleeper and Turin Breaks, amongst many others. And importantly, Polly scored 100% on Ken Bruce's Radio 2 Popmaster and has been on twice Polly, welcome back to now. Hello, Ian. So thank you so much for joining us twice on Popmaster. My goodness. Yeah, I'm thinking seriously about a third one, but my um, attempts recently haven't been quite up to speed and I just, my reputation would be absolutely ruined if I got less than, say, 24. So <laughs> I'm debating it. You know, any questions from like 2002 onwards, I'm just hopeless at. So I'm not sure. But yes, I did really. I got... Um, 100% the first time I did it when I want to, it was so long ago, I want to wind up radio rather <laughs> and I'd into the um, the Champions yeah. League at the end of the year, but I didn't get enough to, to be the champion of the year. And the second time, I can't remember if I got every question right again, but, you know, I won a DAB radio, but the first time I definitely got 100%. I was on in 2017 and did, like yourself, got to Champions League. And people say to me, oh, you're going to go on again, aren't you? And I'm, I'm with you. I'm like, no, no, I can't, because anything less than Champions League now is like failure. And what was your three in 10? Do you remember? Uh, my three in 10 was, oh, no, it was Texas. Right, Yes. Mine was Scissor Sisters. I can't remember what the other one was, but the Scissor Sisters was the last one. I just, just got it. But anyway. But it is, it is the the kudos of having been on it. When people find out, it's almost like we don't care about anything else you've done. Just just tell us about Popmaster. No, maybe I, maybe I should do it again, just because it Go was on. before it was a, kind of a, a biggest deal as it was now. But yeah. any questions about sort of David Guetta or, you know, <laughs> things like that no chance no I'm the same it's it's when Ken Bruce says I'm going to now play a clip from a 2014 it's me yeah, you're like, oh. done <laughs> to be honest <laughs> unless it's a reissue and then I'm then I'm probably all right Will Young is that my <laughs> default answer and the other day because me and my sisters play you know with each other on WhatsApp and there was a question and I just thought oh Will Young or Savage Garden they're the default answers maybe I should go on it again See, you've got you've got the bug again, haven't you? Yeah, you make them think about sort of cramming up on the charts of the the noughties and beyond, and seeing if I can wing it that way. Steve Brookstein, that's always the answer as well. There we go. (laughs) We're going to come to your choice shortly, but before we do that, we always like to ask guests just a bit about growing up and what early music memories you have, and uh, what was your first listening choices. 
Um, luckily, my parents were into music, you know, Beatles, Stones, and then other things like James, Bit Jake Folky, James Taylor, you know, John Prine and things like that. My uncle was a sort of a wannabe musician. And so we had music on all the time in our house. Um, I remember, you know, it's a bit David Bowie Starman, but the first thing that I remember was Mott the Hoople, actually, on top of the Pops, that with a with a, the glam ghetto. In my head, there was a scene of them coming down a slide, but obviously I've looked, obviously they lost all those top of the, early top of the Pops things all got wiped. So I'm wondering if I imagine that, but Mott the Hoople, big silver platform boots, you know, completely captivated by the glam rock thing, Mark Boland. My uncle lived in the house with like lots of people, like, you know, you do when you're young and we used to have parties. We used to go there with my parents when we were kids. And one of his flatmates, he was called Andy, he had loads of records. He used to let me look through his records and he had a punk compilation called New Wave. I think it was from 1977, which I was fascinated by. Point, partly because there was a song in it called Piss Factory by <laughs> Patti Smith. And I was yeah. 11. But I was, and it had lots of pictures of punks on it and that was a real kind of I just study the sleeve you know so anything sort of glammy punky I was starting to get quite into all the sort of post-punk stuff by that point as well 79 was probably the first year I can really remember those kind of pop moments and yeah Chibwee Army it just looked it looked like it did come from space <laughs> oh god 79, best, and I always say this, best ever year for music, definitely. So eclectic, you know, you had all sorts of brilliant disco, post-punk, you know, Echo and the Bunny Man and things like that. I love that year and I, it's, it's the best year ever for music. And lots of people say so too. I think for the seven inch as well, I, I think there's probably some sort of fact around that that was like one of the biggest years for single sales because there was just so much of it around. Funnily enough, I actually, it might have something to do with the fact that's the year I started buying seven inches, actually, 1979. So it's, you know, when I came of age to music, really. So it makes yeah. sense. So what about compilation albums? Did they feature at all growing up? Well, as I said, that new wave punk one was quite something I'd study and it had um it had quite a lot of American punks I never heard it it was the sleeve but then there was an an English one a British one called 20 of another kind the sleeve had this sort of lurid fluorescence or punk with glasses and it had loads of things like the jam jam 69 I think the cure were on it in fact I think it was I looked it up earlier I think it was compiled by Chris Parry from yes. fiction but that was a, one of the sort of most earliest famous punk compilation albums so that but I used to have the NME compilation cassettes and I used to listen to those because I used to buy the music press you know religiously obviously I made my own compilation tapes of many of which I still have taped off the radio taped off um everyone says John Peel okay but I was liked Richard Skinner because he was on before John yeah, Peel, Richard, yeah. Mike Reed even. And they played all the sort of alternative stuff then and then it went on to like Janice Long and stuff. So, look, I've still got the ones I, I made. Oh, in the fabulous. 80s. I know. All take Thompson Twins, Joseph K, Bananarama. I mean, I weren't too, you know, confined to punk and stuff. But, yeah, as I said, the, all the enemy um, used to put cassettes on the cover and... They were a little bit eclectic. I mean, they'd have, they were quite trendy. They'd have lots of jazz and world music coupled mm. with things 
like punk and post-punk and reggae and so there was a lot of fast forward thing going on but they were interesting I mean you know Department of Enjoyment they were always quite sort of cleverly titled I mean Lloyd Cole was on here the Smiths and Orange Juice so they did get a bit more that way Waterboys Nick Cave and then you'd have sort of Dr. John, Winston Marseille's African Connection, Papa Levi. So they were quite a cornucopia of genres, really. Yeah. But quite a big thing for me because, well, you know, the Walkman. So I look, I did like my enemy conversation. And we're going a bit later than Major Fabian, of course, the famous C86. Someone's just written a book about that, haven't they? That's right, yeah. But they were really influential. And, you know, often people think about compilations as being those big, you know, the big selling albums. But actually, some of those niche ones, and particularly the giveaway ones, they were really influencing a lot of people. I know they were. I mean, I was quite happy to listen to... The other genres, although I never was, you know, at that age, I wasn't interested in, you know, world music at all. Um, I found, you know, I went to see bands because of the C86, you know, I actually went to some mm. gigs and things like that. But compilation-wise, I used to make my own, my own really, Ian. <laughs> and I was a bit snobby about now that's what I call music because they didn't have enough echo and the bunny men and whatnot on them, <laughs> did they? It was all sort of Phil Collins and Tina Turner. But um, I was a real taper of the radio. I'm sure most of your guests have done that, haven't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, The big sign that says home taping is killing music has been taken down in this house. Oh, I'd hover over the chart and you'd have to like be careful of to stop it just before the DJ started yep. talking and all that, that sort of thing. And one yeah. And actually, some of those Radio 1 DJs were worse than others, uh, depending oh. on when. Some used to like a good blather over those songs. Used to hate them. Oh, they're terrible. Oh, I used to quite like, I wanted to, to, them to get in the name. So that was Kate Bush. Stop. You know, Stop. Well, that was then. Get the name of the artist in. But the worst is when they started singing over the end. You get like, ah. ba da ba da ba da <gasps> Yeah, yeah. It's no, that, that, but then they must have known. We were all there for one reason only. We were there just to record the songs. Mm, the top four. They used to write down the top four. They used to write down what was on top of the pops, you know, and I was a yeah. real list kid. No one does that anymore. When I used to write down what was on top of the pops, I used to draw a little person, either jumping with joy, smiling, sad, throwing up if I really hated it, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing to sort of illustrate what I thought of of the song. So We could do that for each of these tracks today, actually. We could do it for each of these compilation oh, yeah. tracks. Make some notes. <laughs> Let's move to the autumn of 1985. And which album have you selected for us today, Polly? Now six. The Now label presents its latest collection with Queen. 30 massive hits with Nick Kershaw. Brian Adams and Tina Turner. Why this time? What was what was going on in your life around about 1985? I was still a teenager, very important. And I had become really quite obsessed with going to gigs. And it was the kind of year that I started with a group of people, what, what we used to call in those days, no one really does anymore, following bands. <laughs> 
Yeah. We go around the country and the back of someone's crappy old transit to wherever and go to all the gigs. Because, you know, you didn't have to buy tickets in advance. Then you could just turn up. And then once they got to know you, they send you to get you in free. And there were a couple of bands in at that time that I went everywhere to see. Specifically, Big Audio Dynamite. Oh, fabulous. They were my absolute favourites then. So you were basically following around Mick Jones and the band? Uh, there was a bit, a big group of us and we'd, we'd sort of plan it, like book bed and breakfasts, <laughs> you know, quite organised. And we'd go to, I mean, this started in 85 and then went to Dayset. So we'd go to Liverpool, the Hacienda we went to, Cardiff, never further than, say, Manchester, Manchester, Liverpool, Cardiff, Chippenham, Gold Diggers, you know, venues that don't exist anymore, Brighton, obvious ones, the State Ballroom in Liverpool, that was a, that's a memorable one. So we used to follow them. And we also used to follow a band called the Chiefs of Relief. Oh, no, lost who, me there. Well, I'll tell you who was in the Chiefs of Relief. Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols was the drummer. And the, the singer was Matthew Ashman that had been in Bow Wow Wow and Adam mm. Yan. Yep. But they never, they never had any press or anything. But And they actually supported Big Audio Dynamite on a tour once. So double whammy. Amazing. Yep. So I was in my element then. But, and then we used to go and see, I think it might be a bit later actually, Zodiac Mind Warper and Love Fresh. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> I love those bands. They never they weren't in the enemy, didn't write about them. They weren't kind of weird or jazzy. The enemy was very, very serious in about the mid-80s. And they didn't, mm. you know, they only liked writing about sort of very sort of chin strokey, worthy stuff a bit, I think. Yeah. So but actually I remember Zodiac Mind Warp being quite a big feature in Smash Hits. And they liked that kind of stuff because it was quite a character. Oh, he was he was very funny and was he used to do be the cartoonist for Flexipop. Yeah. But he was funny and he had quite invented quite a good persona with Zodiac. Yeah, I, c- I could imagine NME not really knowing what to do with Zodiac Mind Warp. No, I think they were probably, they were in sounds more actually. But yeah, 85 was following bands, you know, no one really... No one does that anymore, do they? They don't follow too expensive to do. I mean, I think the last band that people probably did that with was the Libertines or something. You know, Mm. they'd have a fan base that would go from venue to venue. But um, it was very exciting to do that at the time and just sort of turn up and be worried. Well, what if we don't get in? I remember we were all sitting on the train once going up to Liverpool, me and my all my friends, and we were discussing it. And a woman stuck her head over the um, train seat and said, she was American, are you girls going to the bad gig and we went yeah and she went you know it's sold out and we were like oh no she went what are your names I'm the manager I'll put you on the guest list like, oh my god little, you know stuff like that was great oh so, fantastic do you think um were you known to the band did they know you um later on there was some a friend of a friend in one of the support band I kept quite quiet I was quite sort of shy but yes they did they gave us a let us go on get a lift on, um, I think Don let us, let, let us get a lift on their coach once from one place to another. And then one of the friends that used to come and see them with us later on was the sister of one of the other members of The Clash. So there was a bit of an in there. So it did help. <laughs> but usually you just sort of went, turned up blind to places and just hoped for the best. But That's such a different culture to anything. You know, I mean, you think about following now, it's much easier to follow a band on TikTok than it is to follow them around the country. It was such good fun going to all those places that you'd never normally go to but yeah 
tremendously. And then with the other band I mentioned, Chiefs Relief, it was much smaller venues, Bedford Boys Club, Stevenage Bows Lion House, and and they were always a bit hairy. Those those venues out of yeah. sort of out of town. And there's often fights and things. It's quite it's quite a quite a learning ground for you in, in the yeah. in the kind of rock world. Yes, it was much more spit and sawdust back then. I'm intrigued as we're going to dig into this album in a second because looking across the track list for now six, it is very indie light, and I've written that down in my notes. Even yeah. even for 1985, there's not a lot of what you would describe as indie on there. There's some real yawnathons on there, isn't there? Yeah. Well, you know, it'll be interesting because we often skip past certain tracks when we're going through a track list, so feel free to jump quickly past some of them. But there's some that are quite interesting as well. Oh, there are definitely. It's an interesting year 85 because you've got this kind of post-Live Aid thing. And this this is the first now really after after Live Aid. And I think it's it's very evident on there. 1985 is this kind of linchpin year for the decade because a lot of those early 80s big acts and bands are starting to slip a bit. And there's almost this new, new 80s sound coming in. Yeah, so you mean like sort of Nick Kershaw had definitely sort of had his moment by then, hadn't he? And sort of, you've got things like Arcadia on here. Did anyone even care about them then? Do they care about them now? No. <laughs> there's that kind of first wave are starting to, you know, either starting to falter or they're having to reinvent themselves. And you see some bands that at the beginning of the 80s don't resemble the band they are now on No Six. No, you're right. Is, 1985 is when Stranger Things is set. And look what is on here. Well, let's, yeah, let's come to that shortly because there's there's actually a bit of Stranger Things across a few of the tracks here, but we can come to those as we kind of whittle our way through these four sides. Notable, first of all, I love the cover of this album. It's basically the inside lining of a coat. Oh, with this sort of the label on it, isn't it? Yeah, so it's got that kind of um, stitched in label, which I just think is brilliant bit of detail. But also, again, it kind of indicates it's that kind of mid-80s aspiration, I'll put it in inverted commas, yuppie type thing going on. For two albums on the back, they've got this tagline that says, feel the quality. Oh, it's <laughs> just... Well, there's some tracks we will feel the quality. There's a few tracks that we probably won't. But um, touch with the trading standards on some of the quality here. Oh, yes, very much so. But it's, it's an interesting time. And as well as that kind of indie not being represented and often wasn't now but it certainly isn't on this one it's also a weird time for dance because it's not yet house music it's not that early kind of brit funk of the early 80s it's a kind of in between we don't know what we are it's kind of a bit more sort of euro kind of stuff isn't it that's a good point though it really is nothing like cameo there you go but they were out there they're not really what I wouldn't consider them a dance thing but you know you've just got your, your sort of Baltimore that sort of Euro trash stuff really it's always interesting to see what's missing and of course with your kind of world of PR you'll know how the licensing of tracks often works for compilation albums and of course at this time there was the big battle between what was the Now albums and the Hits albums. So you had record companies keeping tracks for themselves. And of course, you look back now at this as a time capsule and you think, 85, there's huge tracks missing. There's no Madonna, there's no Prince, there's no AHA, these types of things. Um, AHA were on the one before, I think. 
Um, the, I think, yeah, they certainly featured on some of the Now albums, but there was there was always that kind of tussle with record companies. But the big track for Fraha's Take On Me, which is on Holding Up To The Screen, always good for a podcast, which is on this, which was Hits 3. So, yeah, so, so there's always that kind of interesting thing. <laughs> Let's go straight to record one, side one, and we talk about Live Aid. It's Queen, it's One Vision, it's the song I think they wrote all about Live Aid. Oh, um, really? I think this was written pretty much with kind of Bob Geldof in mind, but I think as well, I don't know, depending on which page on Wikipedia you look at, Roger Taylor uh, was looking at Martin Luther King and the influence of him as well. So, But there's definitely a kind of big Live Aid feel to this track. I am not a Queen fan at all. And as Stuart McConey called them, they are the pantomime Led Zeppelin. And um, he has a point. And I've always, I don't know, I like, I like a couple of their songs, but I found that if you upset Queen fans on social media, <laughs> beware. Yeah. Because I did something rude about them once and I got a barrage of abuse from like, oh my God, don't knock Freddie, basically. You get into trouble. Yeah, they've, they've got to this kind of almost unassailable point now in pop culture and actually you kind of forget that especially going through the 80s and the 90s Queen used to take quite a bashing in all the media to be honest I've just never really liked them I think okay he's a, f- a great front man and stuff but that have just never appealed to me and I don't really know why I always the thing I always remember that my mum always used to say what a deeply unattractive man Freddie Mercury was. And I always think that when I see him. But I just don't like them. I just think they're overrated. Oh, no, I'm going to get it now from the Queen fans, aren't I? <laughs> the thing about Queen is that they were a big EMI act. So when they had a single coming out, chances are they'd be pretty prominent on the Now albums. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've got so many singles. You hear, like, you listen to Pick of the Pops and, or listen to see the old Top of the Pops and there's loads of singles you just think... How did this one get past the sort of A&R meeting? But they were just churning them out then because they were queen, you know. It's, yeah, so sitting right at the top there and number seven in the charts. So actually even for Queen's standard, it's not, not, not massive. So we move on to track two, which, yeah, we talked about Nick Kershaw already. Now, Nick, Nick Kershaw, this would have been a comeback single for him, but it's on a slide, let's be honest. I can't even remember it. No, When a Heart Beats, uh, number 27 in the charts, Nick. Oh, well, there you go then. You know, he so. didn't really do much more until he wrote The One and Only for Chesney Hall. It's actually, that that's pretty much it. This was his last... Last appearance in the top 30 uh, from there. And you also forget as well, you know, talk about that early 80s. Nick Kershaw was only really bouncing about the charts for about two years, but within that time managed to fill it with quite a lot of tracks. Yeah, I reckon I'd probably just about get the three and ten on Nick Kershaw on Popmaster, I think. <laughs> just about. You probably wouldn't have chosen this one. Um, no, I wouldn't. Don't even remember it. It hasn't <laughs> no, been at all. No, it's, it's not. And again, you can imagine, you know, the kind of record company thinking, we've got a new Nick Kershaw song. Nick Kershaw's been huge. Let's get him on now. Six. Never mind. My sister's kind of liked Nick Kershaw, but no, he was way too square for me. <laughs> it was the haircut, probably, as well. Don't forget the snood. And the snood, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Next to that, we've got first number one, which is Fergal Sharkey. Yes, I like this song. I like the intro. It's one of the great, whenever I hear the intro sort of fade in on the radio, I like it. Maria McKee wrote it. 
yeah. about her relationship with uh, Tom Petty's keyboard player or something. And it's funny because I only realised recently that Fergal Sharkey wrote absolutely zero songs for the undertones. No, yeah, I, you always no. assumed, because he was such a big front man, you assumed yeah. it was his band. And he wrote nothing. Obviously didn't write this one because it's no. been too good. <laughs> and you've got David E. Stewart, Dave Stewart, producing well, yeah. it as well. I, I mean, it is, it sounds like a hit. It sounds like a hit then. It still comes on the radio and it still sounds like a like it's one a of those. Good song. That is yeah. a good song, yeah. And next to that is Dave Stewart himself. So we've got Eurythmics. And I think. You think this was only number one? Yeah, only number one. I loved her. I love the Eurythmics. I like the Tourists. I really like Annie Lennox. And um, that's not one of my favourite ones of their songs, actually. Same year, um, Would I Lie to You, which is one of my favourite ones, which you hear on the radio. They always play the obvious ones, Would I Lie to You. I remember when she was on Top of the Pops doing that, she was wearing a black Hellenic jumper, like black jumpers and motorbike boots. I went out, copied the whole outfit (laughs) and I dyed my hair white blonde because she, I think she looked amazing. She, but she yeah. always looked amazing, Annie Lennox. Often talk about boys being that chameleon type character, but Annie Lennox was absolutely iconic in the styles. Oh, she's great. And actually, you know, going back to what we're talking about, those bands that struggled moving from one half of the 80s to the other, the Eurythmics didn't have that problem. No, they didn't really fit into any specific genre, did they? They just did what they wanted to do, really. And she had a great voice, so and she could put her hand to anything, really. Yeah, and we've got Stevie Wonder on harmonica, so there we go. Now, next to that, I've written shoulder pads because it's Simple Minds, Alive and Kicking. Love Alive and Kicking, but do you know what the problem with that record is? What? The DJs always talk over the best bit, which is the end. With yeah. Big, booming, backing vocal thing, you know, the, where it sort of goes and comes back. Always talk over it. I always, every time it comes to the radio, I think, is the DJ going to talk over it today? Obviously, if it's Ken Bruce, he won't talk over it. No, if it's right, he will talk over it. He will. But I loved Simple Minds when they were more post-punk, you know, and stuff like that. But I did like them up until here as well. I went off them a bit after here when they got a bit stadium rock, as people always say. But <laughs> They're great, actually. I've seen them a few times, and they now pull a lot more back towards the early stuff because I think they realise oh. that actually that's where the money is. They're influ- a lot of bands, you know, cite them as an influence now. The Manic Street Preachers, for example, and you wouldn't have expected someone like them to say Simple Minds were a big influence, but I loved Love early Simple Minds albums. I still play them. You've got Robin Clark on backing vocals on this as well. She's amazing. Oh, that's the bit at the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real great, bombastic production. It's a great, great song, that. The warning signs are in the video because I've got a funny feeling Jim Kerr's got a pair of Jodhapurs and riding boots on, which just just says, yeah, the times they are changing. We're into kind of rock territory a bit now here. We've got Brian Adams and Tina Turner. There's a run of real dullness here. So Gary Moore, you know, Lavender Blue by Marillion. Massive soft spot for Kaylee, one of my guilty pleasures, that is. Um, I haven't got very much to say about anything. They're all a bit pedestrian, aren't they? The thing about Brian Adams and Tina Turner, big names, but it's a pretty dismal track, actually. Mm. Um, it was nominated for a Grammy for the best rock performance by a duo <laughs> or group. That's just a made-up category just for that song, yeah. isn't it? Yes, not absolutely not interested in Tina and Brian. Some Tina on her own, and no Brian Adams on his own for me, please. Uh, that actually was Brian's last top forty hit until 
Oh, until the, you know, until that, track. that track. So we'll not talk about that. Thing is, though, I was thirteen at this point. So Brian Adams, Tina Turner, Gary Moore, and Marillion—they were not on my radar. No, they weren't on my radar, and I was like nineteen. <laughs> so actually, let's let's flip the record over. Let's go to again. The Live Aid Afterglow. You've got Nikita from Elton John. Oh, I've got a soft spot for Nikita. It makes me very evocative, that record, because it reminds me of hanging around my mate's squats in Kentish Town, weirdly. That's what that record reminds me of. This is one of these songs that people who don't like Elton John like Nikita. Yeah, I, I like Elton John. I like Elton, generally, I do. In the video... Looking for his Russian girlfriend and it's easy, but it's, it's pretty right. cheesy. It's pretty cheesy. There's a great clip in it though where he's got his Tommy boots on from Pinball Wizard. If you haven't seen it, go back and, and he's he's got his Watford gear on, which is um, I can't remember. I'm trying to think of the video. It's a bit it's a bit slushy that song, but I do quite like it. Elton John really hasn't ever gone away. Thinking that the other day, I was thinking of acts who've just constantly, you know, they've never really had I mean, they've all had little dips, but they've always come back with something, and he's one of them, isn't he? <laughs> Now, next to that is a track I'd almost forgotten about. You never hear this song anymore. You never hear it, no. One of these songs, Forgotten 80s. Kate Bush, Running Up That Hill. No, there it is. There it is. And I I must admit, I didn't know, because they've obviously talked about it a lot recently, about the fact that it was meant to be called um, Deal With God, but she was talked out of calling it that because it might upset religious people. I think it was predominantly America said. Oh, that makes sense. In the boardroom said, we can't play that track in most of the country. So, um, so, yeah, so this was then, it's got two lives now, this song. 1985, this was the launch single for the Hounds of Love album. It was a big comeback after the dreaming. It's just taken a complete life of its own this song oh, I think it's great I mean I'm glad it's you know reaching a new generation all that. although I'm getting a bit fed up with all the think pieces in the press and <laughs> oh Kate Bush is like okay let's move on to something else now and it is a great record and I liked it then and I still like it and I always remember the top of the pops performance with all that mm. a little weird like then they're all walking forward it's quite sinister when you actually deconstruct it it is I mean it's a huge hit it is quite an incredibly constructed song. It wasn't oh, your average pop song. No, it's got like, um, I don't know, what's the instrument called? So like a, it's got lots of weird little yeah. old instruments on it. And what, what, where did it get to in the charts the first time around? It was the top 10, wasn't it? First time around, it got to number three. So oh, well, it was a big hit then, OK. Always fascinated. Kate Bush was 27 when that song came out. Mad. She's only two weeks older than Madonna, which is, which is always quite interesting as well. See, I like Kate Bush, but I don't love Kate Bush. And it's, you're not allowed to say that. I mean, yeah. nearly all of her singles are brilliant, but I never own one of her albums. Mm. You know, her body of work, for me, doesn't have enough greatness points, if that makes sense. I mean, I like all the singles, but... I've been catching know. up on Stranger Things with uh, my eldest daughter. There was an episode where they're singing Never Ending Story. And I, and I just suddenly thought, Lamal must be absolutely kicking himself just now. I know, you'd be pleased, but I noticed, and this is this is where my sort of indie credentials come in, they had a Cramps song in it. And I was Wait. thinking, oh, I wish the Cramps had a, <laughs> you know, a fortunes like Kate Bush did but I don't think that will happen No, there must be quite a lot of bands featuring across these soundtracks sitting on their fingers crossed at the moment Here's, what, here's another one of these bands from early 80s, jazz funk 
scene, level 42, reinventing themselves considerably as, I don't know, sophisti-pop. Now, level 42, okay, me, died in the wool, indie punk kid. I bloody love level 42. <laughs> I probably... One of my favourite songs, believe it or not, my credibility completely gone down the drain here. I went to my first Glastonbury the following year in 86 and they and they were playing. And I remember finding my old diary and it said, Level 42 are the best. They even had lasers. <laughs> so, greatest hits, Level 42, one of the best greatest hits compilations there is, I'd say, along with the Eurythmics as well. But again, a great singles act, Level 42. Oh. Brilliant. I wouldn't listen to one of their albums, but I love something about you. Yeah, it's a really good song, you know. And of course, they're about to hit a run, actually, the most commercial run, really, because you've got that, you've got Lessons in Love, Running in the Family, all these types of tracks coming Leaving up. Leaving Me Now. Leaving Me Now. Oh. Greatest ballads of all time. <laughs> That's, that is one of those real grab the ear moments, isn't it? Leaving Me Now. <laughs> Props to Level 42, definitely. Yeah. In the turn of the Mad Max film theme now. Yeah, this was the Thunderdome. Is that the third yeah. Mad Max film? I'm not sure. I probably have seen it. Tina Turner was riding a, on the crest of a wave around here, wasn't she? Yeah. It got to number two in America behind St Elmo's Fire. Yeah, big shoulder pads again. There's kids quiet at the end of this track when they all oh, join yeah. in with Tina Turner. So that was the King's House School Choir from Richmond and London. One of those kids was Lawrence Delalio. Of course, of course it was, yes. It was all famous. I'm sure there was someone famous in the Pink Floyd school choir yeah. on um, Brick in the Wall. Yeah, so there we are. Right, so next up we've got the first appearance on this album from UB40, Don't Break My Heart. One of their better songs and very underrated, I think. You don't hear it that much because they had much bigger hits, but I think it's a lovely, lovely song, that. UB40 did have good success with cover versions and they did a lot of really good cover versions as well, but they're often underrated for their own songs. And you're right, to me, this is one of their best. Yeah, it's I always good. used to love the lyrics when he says, you buy me silly things. <laughs> yeah, these 80s stations, you would never hear that. And it's a shame because it's... It's, it's a shame it's much better than what comes up next. Oh, uh, it's Phil Collins. Phil was everywhere in 1985. Mm, this is a duet one, isn't it? With, yeah, um, with Marilyn Martin. Oh, was it from a film or something? Uh, yes, it was. It was a film, White Nights. But yeah, you had to, you had to go a long way in 1985 to not see Phil Collins because he was pretty much everywhere. He was on Miami Vice. He was a Live Aid. He was on Concord. He was... <laughs> Oh, his Live Aid thing was the very, very big deal, wasn't it? Didn't he fly from one to the other, didn't he? Yeah, I think I had Live Aid in. I was in on holiday in Portugal when Live Aid was on, and I was really miffed that I missed it. I was actually quite disgruntled by it, because I definitely would have bought tickets and gone if, yeah. if I'd been here. So it was a real case of the original FOMO for me then, and I did miss out. And they didn't show it very much on telly in Portugal, and I was really, really pissed off about that. So it kind of, it kind of passed me by a bit, unfortunately. So you missed Phil Collins on Concord being interviewed by Noel Edmonds, amongst other things then? Missed a lot of, missed most of it, sadly. Ah. Oh well, we'll move we'll move quickly on then because next to that we're at the end of side two is Claire Fritchard <laughs> with a song that nobody will know or nobody will care about. This was from Dave Clark's musical Time. Oh right, okay. Which nobody saw. I don't think either. That musical 
well, there was Cliff's track. There was Freddie Mercury again, uh, Dion Warwick, Julian Lennon. This track itself was written by Stevie Wonder. And actually, you listen back to it and you can kind of hear it. Well, I saw Cliff on here. I thought, oh, I didn't know Cliff had some... He's always has a song lurking about somewhere every year, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, he does. And this one only lurked to number 17. So well done, Ooh. UK buying public. Cliff gets a bit of a free pass from me for doing um, for putting out We Don't Talk Anymore because that is a banger, let's yeah. face it. Yeah. yeah, I think actually that for me, Wired for Sound, yeah. these songs actually get you out of jail. So yeah, that, that track is pretty forgettable, to be honest. So. Right, so we are now on to record two, or cassette two. We have no preference on the podcast. And we start off again with a band... Probably in a bit of identity crisis, shall we say. Wasn't it Arcadia now? I, sh- I didn't do my... That's uh, Nick Rhodes. So, Someone... yeah, this is Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes and Roger Taylor. So you've got three-fifths of Duran Duran here. It's the power station was the other Duran Duran and old Robert old Palmer, wasn't it? This is, this is like Popmaster now, isn't it? <laughs> I think so, no one... They didn't really make much of a... Splash, did they? Either Arcadia or the Power Station, kind of they had the Some Like It Hot, didn't they? That was more memorable. But which track is this? Isn't the only really big hit they had, which was this one, which was Election Day. It was okay, but we want we want Duran Duran. We don't want, you know, side projects. We want the actual Duran Duran. And it was quite a big side project. I mean, again, you've got Dave Gilmer from Pink Floyd on here, Grace Jones, Sting, Herbie Hancock. I mean, they're all on there. However, the sum of the parts... Well, you don't see it popping up in the Rolling Stones' greatest albums of all time <laughs> list. Yeah, you know, there were better times ahead for Duran Duran coming up the following year with a notorious album and yeah. back on to things again but yes a split down the middle number one in italy for seven weeks election day oh really wow strange yeah if, yeah i'd like to see the charts to be honest um and then we've got ub40 again chrissy hines um oh, standard standard yeah you hear this a lot you do hear a this a lot on the radio yeah it just sounds like they're having fun yeah it's not much to say about it i like chrissy hines i don't particularly like this duet but you know it is what it is they got back together and did it again in 88. They did Breakfast in Bed. Breakfast in Bed, yeah. So after that, we've got Fine Young Cannibals using a football analogy, hitting the bar, shall we say, with this track, especially after Johnny Come Home, which had been huge yeah, because, hit. Yeah, this reached the dreaded 41, didn't it? Number 41, which is and a shame. Thatcher. I think it's the sort of a anti-Thatcher song, isn't it? Because it's sort of the lyrics, if you look at them, it's very directed at her. I, I was funny because I sort of did a bit of look them up and I... Realised that their second, the difficult second album for them was in fact their absolutely massively million-selling second album. And it, I forgot they had this album first. Yeah, this track was certainly overshadowed by Johnny Come Home, which is which is a track you still hear a lot, which is great. Yeah. And then they did the cover of Suspicious Minds. And this is kind of sandwiched in the middle. And I actually went back to it. Um, they re-released both Fine Young Canva's albums a couple of years ago and went back. And actually the first album is still pretty good. They were pretty good. I think they, they don't didn't really sound like anyone else. It's a real mixture of, 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 of genres and everything. But um, everyone had the raw and the cook, though, didn't they? <laughs> that was one, yeah. of, one of those problems, like the Sade album and whatnot that everyone owned. I would always say worth going back to listen to this first album again because it's uh, it still stands up pretty well, and it's got that kind of it's that kind of uh, mid eighties political pop 
sound without being too political and still being quite tuneful. Yeah, maybe that's why Blue didn't do so well. Maybe they didn't play it on the radio because it was mm. a bit political. Yeah. Now, so, Midget got to, number, got to number one. Who knew? I loved the early Ultravox stuff. I, I really liked Ultravox and stuff. But even then... Got, got to number one because of his thing with Live Aid. Everyone was thinking, yeah, yeah. Live Aid. Let's buy his record, even though it's really dull. I think the Live Aid thing certainly helped. Because a mid-year single, if he hadn't been involved in Band Aid and Live Aid, probably wouldn't have got to no. number one. I mean, I like, I like, as you said, a lot of the other the old fox stuff with him and 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 stuff. But if I was, was it was okay. But I was surprised it got to number one, but not surprised because of you know Live Aid, obviously. Yeah, and I think Ultravox were on the slide by this point as well. So you could see Midge perhaps thinking, "Hang on, there's maybe maybe a solo project here." He did all right, didn't he have a cover of No Regrets? He did, didn't he? And that did quite well too. Yeah, I haven't heard it, but on the B-side of this single, The Man Who Sold the World. Oh. I don't know if I want to either. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest. So we'll let that one slip. There's not much indie on here, but there's some people attempting to wave a flag. Um, and we've got Susie and the Banshees here with Cities and Dust. Yes, really looks very uncomfortable amongst everything else. And I bought that 12-inch and I really like that track. And you never hear it. But I think they'd started to slide their, you know, the hit sort of dried up a bit with them there as well. But that was a great single, that. Yeah, and it's weird I, that on here. That was the lead single for the next album, which was Tinderbox, which which was that kind of again, I suppose a bit like the cure. It was starting to kind of kind of one eye on the charts, one eye still on the fans. But um tr- I mean only number twenty one this got to, which is just shocking to be honest. I was obsessed with Susie Sue, you know, in the very early eighties. You know, I used to copy her makeup and everything everything by everything have a scrapbook cut out every photograph of her and everything like that but by then i'd moved on really but i did love that record do you know that that would have sounded great in stranger things as well wouldn't it yes definitely i bet i think do they use spellbound in stranger things oh i think they did so yeah so there's not much indie going on here but it's kind of indie leaning. Is that the best way to describe it? Madness have never really been indie, but Uncle Sam, this is this is late stage madness. I love madness, and I know that song, but I can't, I can't think of how it goes. This was ending a run for madness anyway, because this only got to number twenty one as well. This kind of ended madness's run of top twenty hits since the Prince. It's not particularly memorable. No, no, not really uh, notable because you've got Gary Barnacle playing horns on there. Gary Barnacle played horns on pretty much every track of the eighties. Um, so. In fact, Gary Barnacle's band, The Leisure Process, was on one of my Enemy compilation cassettes. Oh, it really was everywhere. <laughs> So, like all the commotions last weekend, the difficult second album. <laughs> Lloyd Colby, still my beating heart. I was just listening to Rattlesnakes the other day, actually, and it's still an incredible album. What a brilliant album. I know. Fantastic. Went to, um, he did an acoustic gig a few years ago, about three or four years ago in Guildford, and I went to see him. He just stood there. He was very funny and self-deprecating and... It was good. Yes, I loved the first two Lloyd Cole albums. And was the follow-up to Brand New Friend, which is brilliant as well. Yeah. No, I really like Lloyd Cole. I think he doesn't get enough 
props, I believe they say now, don't they? You know, again, go back to these 80s radio stations and whatnot. You don't hear Lloyd Cole as much. And actually, I mean, track like that, this is a great song, Lost Weekend. It's brilliant, yeah. When did My Bag come out? That was later on, wasn't it? That was a good one too. Well, yeah, actually, that was a good that was a good album as well later on. I don't know, when they came out, they came out at the same time as The Smiths, mm. and The Smiths got the attention, really, over Lloyd Cole. Yeah, and I think, I think actually Gary Barnacle's on that one as well. Probably. <laughs> so we finish off side three of the record with the debut single for the Communards, You Are My World. Yeah, I find it really annoying, actually. I don't like it. Whereas I think their version of Don't Leave Me This Way is one of the great cover versions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a slow start, shall we say, for the communards. It's just kind of showcasing his his vocals, really, that track, which, you know, you can love, love it or hate it, really. So... We are on to the last side and, right, so Paul Hardcastle had been number 19, obviously, through the, through, I, find, I think the biggest selling single of 1985 was 19. Yeah, this, what's this track? That's proving his one-hit wonder <laughs> status, isn't it, really? Yeah, so this this was Paul Hardcastle telling the great train robbery story with Bob Hoskins and Laurence Olivier. But he certainly got his money's worth out of that sampler. He did, and I'm sure he made quite a lot of money from his big hit. Yeah, and again, you can you can imagine the now people thinking, well, we can't get the big hit, but we'll get this one instead. Oh, never mind. He's, he's probably on there because the label had another big band. They said, you can put so-and-so on, but only if you put Paul Hardcastle on as well, because that's definitely what they used to do, isn't it? Now, next to that is Miami Vice theme, 1985, Miami Vice, of course, Jan Hammer. Never watched it in my life. <laughs> well, there was probably better things to do. I know that they were called Tubbs and Crockett and had like rolled up white suit sleeves and it was, what was he called? The guy? He made some records, didn't he? Don um, Johnson. Don Johnson, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty rotten records as well, um, I think. But yeah, it's, I mean, again... I don't think I watched much of my Hammy Vice. Being around the country seeing big audio dynamite. Exactly, yeah. You've not got time to watch this, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but uh, but yeah, Jan Hammer, keyboards. Jan Hammer, actually, he'd been a member of the Mahavishnu Orchestra back in the early 70s, so he's got a bit of reputation. But um, by this point, sleeves were rolled up. Yeah, no, Miami Vice, completely over my head, to be honest. So, moving on, this is, in inverted commas, what you would call the dance side. But yes. As you said earlier, it's hard to define what kind of dance music it is. It's a bit, what do they call it, sort of Euro pop, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, really? so the first track in this run is Body Rock by Maria where, Vidal. Where is she from? Where was she from? I think she was American. Um, yeah, that's quite a good pop song. It is, it works. It's got that kind of punchy 80s feel. Yep, it's very sort of rah-rah-ska and a big bow in the hair kind of yeah. song. Yeah, um, and Maria Vidal had been and went on to be quite a bit of a kind of backing vocal. She worked with Belinda Carlisle and Cher and actually most recently Lana Del Rey. So she's obviously still working, which is always good. Yeah, that's interesting. It's always quite good. So, but there we are. So Body Rock, which sits next to the second Stranger Things song, because I heard this in a roller skating rink in, in Stranger Things. And it's oh, Baltimore. Yeah. yeah, Tarzan Boy, which is still here on the radio. And it's kind of sort of okay, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it's one of the tracks that probably takes me back to that kind of pop 85 thing. It's that kind of Europop sound of that kind of summer. 
Yeah, it's fun. I quite like it. It's sort of, I, I put that in the same sort of bag as, say, um, that Matthew Wilder Break My Stride record. Uh, that I kind of yeah. reminds me of that sort of thing. It's not trying to do anything other than just be a pop record. No, if you had it at a wedding, you'd definitely get up and dance, I reckon. Oh, I would be throwing children out of out of the way to get to the dance floor for that one. Yeah, as well, with really, really bad CGI and stuff, didn't it? Yeah, it was exactly as it should have been, I think, to be honest. You must have an interesting pop fact about Baltimore. What's he doing now? Like, is he well, sort of- the guy that was, that was in the video was an Irish based Italian singer called Jimmy McShane. Right. Who, and there's a bit of controversy about the kind of lip syncing. It's like a black box story, basically. Did he oh, sing it or didn't he? Type yeah. thing, or was he just fronting it? So, but actually sadly died in 1994. So props, he's in, he's in one of those tracks, I suppose. Yeah. My Thai, yeah. uh, Body Very and Soul. History came before that, didn't Which they? is a great song. And then this, and then nothing. The kind of slide down the dumper as smash hits would have said um <laughs> so however next to that is cameo now we're not talking word up cameo yet but this this is still a bit of a track oh cameo great which what came first this or word up no word up still to come that comes next year oh really so this came up before okay because word mm. up really is one of the most greatest most extraordinary records of all time it's you know one of those ones that you just think this doesn't sound like anything else yeah. it is superb but yeah single life's great he's got um larry hagman he was a character wasn't he larry hagman larry blackmon he's from bloody dallas isn't he larry- that was brilliant i've just got an image now in my head wrong one that's okay. fine oh my god i hope that's not a question on Popmaster one day no, if, uh, but, but equally, you would you'd become legendary if you said Larry Hagman. That would be that would be amazing. Dallas, I didn't even watch Dallas. But I'm anyway. just imagining the Twitterati on the uh, Popmaster. Oh my goodness, that'd be oh, terrible. Oh, you'd be oh. crucified, yes. But um, yeah, Cameo had that sound. This this to me, you know, you look for the kind of clues to where the rest of the decades going, and actually, this this track probably more than any other on here says that kind of funk sound of the eighties continuing. Yeah, I think so too. It's a, it's, they were great. They're quite unusual band cameo. They've been going. They've been going for ages, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, at one point, according to my notes, there was there was fourteen members in the band. Um, but yeah, no, they, they'd they'd been playing around the East Coast and New York scene for a long time. Gwen Guthrie had been part of that scene as well. So, you know, you can see that kind of funk sound, particularly a lot of what's coming next, like Janet Jackson and the kind of Jam and Lewis sounds. It's all starting to happen. Oh, it definitely, yeah. And then yeah. It, it ends with a bit of a whimper, doesn't it? The, um... Oh, it does. It does. David Grant, Jackie Graham, mated. Oh, they did, um, was, could it be I'm Falling in Love With Them, wasn't it? Yeah. Brand, which Brand, They were great pop songs, but that's sort of one of the... Although written by Todd Rundgren. Really? Okay. Yeah, doesn't help though. <laughs> still a bit, yeah. still a bit flat. And often with now, you find that there's either what there's one of two ways a now album ends. It, it ends on a really big, big, massive flourish, or it ends with a with a whimper. <laughs> and it's a sad ending. They could have, yeah, yeah. I would have probably just well stuck Paul Hardcastle right at the very end. Maybe that might have worked better. So. As a time capsule of 1985, how do you find this album stands? I think it's 
a little bit all over the place, actually. It's not a very good representation. Whereas I looked at the one from before, the, mm. the, it was much better, actually. Um, it's a bit all over the place, I think. This was this was one of the kind of first big years when EMI and Virgin didn't have the same pool of tracks because CBS and Warner, Sony as they are now, were creating their own compilations. And I think is- you're starting to see it here. Yeah, it's a little bit, there's a few fillers and it's, it doesn't seem to have been put together with as much sort of attention to detail as some of the other ones, having looked at them and a bit, you know, oh, we would put this one out at the end of the year, you know, and then, yeah, now five was far superior, the uh, track listing to that, but who was the Christmas number one? Shaking Stevens was the Christmas number one. I know. You could see in this, there are probably some filler tracks, <laughs> it's fair yeah. to say. It, it's a little bit, dreary there's no real bangers you know as they say now in there at all there's some sort of good well-structured songs but no real kind of yeah yeah on there, I think. so which of these tracks would you say were your highlights then level 42 how many am i allowed oh you can have as many as you like oh well level 42 uh simple minds susie and the banshees um don't break my heart and of course Running up that hill, I'll have to. I'll have to throw that one into the pot, wouldn't With I? A good heart, yes, that one as well. But oh, Lloyd Cole too. I think that's it. Do you know what? It's the type of record that you could have taken with a blank C ninety, <laughs> and actually made a really banging compilation. Yes. <laughs> Slightly reorder the the tracks round a bit, to be honest, because there were. I mean, looking in the charts around about this time. Again, probably stolen to other compilation albums, but you had you had Wham, you Dead or Alive, you know, you had a lot of really kind of big pop tracks. Donna, yeah, yeah. But um, again, the kind of record company wars by this point were kind of stifling the creativity a bit. It's a shame, really. Again, what is interesting is actually contextualizing it and going back and looking at kind of where people were at in 1985 around these tracks. There's definitely a Live Aid afterglow to this album. And that often means, in inverted commas, serious pop stars. Yes. I mean, it didn't, it, it's not very adventurous, is it, the uh, track listing, except for the Susie and the Banshees track and maybe the Lloyd Cole one a little bit, but there's no real curveballs in there. Polly, thank you so much for joining us here on the Back to Now podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I did. It's great fun. And heading back to, I think it's fair to say, an interesting now six. Yes, definitely. No, no, maybe not that interesting now six. (laughs) (laughs) But an, an interesting point in the decade, shall we say. There's definitely better things to come. Oh, absolutely better things to come. I think it was the sort of, yeah, it's a bit of a low year, I think, 85. And with all the lows, there has to be highs afterwards. Yes, definitely. Polly, thank you so much. Thank you, Ian. So thanks to Polly Burtbeck for heading back to Now 6 with me and sharing some memorable stories from 85. You can follow Polly on Twitter at Complete Control PR, particularly if you'd like more Popmaster Chat. And if you've enjoyed Polly, don't forget to check out Simon Galloway's episode, Revisiting Now 5, to complete your 85 collection. It's always great to hear your thoughts on Now 6, and indeed any other pop rambles that you have. And the adventures continue on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Take care and join me again soon for more Back to Now.